from chaos. And we're going to look at, 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 at these reoccurring themes that you see throughout the Bible of how Jesus works, how God works. And I would describe it like this. We're going to take you on a, on a road trip. We're going to go from point A to point B. And along the way, the goal is to get to point B, but along the way, I'm going to point out things out the window that you might find interesting, but I don't have time to stop. So you might have to go back and revisit some things later on, okay? I'm just going to, I'm going to give you a lot of things to think about. And, uh, and we'll, have, we'll have fun with that today. So Mark Twain is uh, credited with the saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And it's kind of a saying that, <clears throat> that it's not that we're on this cycle where things reoccur on a, on a certain cycle, but there are themes that seem to come up. There's patterns that seem to come up that they certainly rhyme. And if you look at the Bible, there's things within the Bible that we, we tend to look at verses and chapters and sections, and, and, and sometimes we don't realize when we, when we look at it as a whole that there are some, some cyclic things that we can see. We can see a little bit of the the pattern of God and how God works. And that's, I, I know my brain is wired that way. I look for patterns and, and shapes and, and, and those trends, and that's kind of the way I'm wired, and I get excited about that, and I know that everybody doesn't. But, um, but I want to show you some things. So before we start, I want you to look at this picture. And when you look at this picture, what do you see? And you may look and say, well, it looks like Gaza today, or it may look like Baghdad uh, a generation ago. And it seems to be this, this worn but do you see George Bush in this, being told by Andrew Card that the second plane had just hit the towers on September 11th, 2001? And if you go to the next picture, it, it kind of puts that picture a little bit smaller. When the picture's smaller, then it becomes even more clear. It's an AI-generated picture. But it's a neat illustration of sometimes we look at one thing and we see that. But if we zoom in or zoom out we might see a completely different picture within that. And, and then once you see it, it's hard to unsee it, and you go back and you, would, you, 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 you just get stuck in that. And one of the things with the Bible is, when you take the Bible and you look at it as a whole, and if there was a crime that was committed, you have the investigators or the crime scene investigators come in, and what they do is they dust for fingerprints. And when they dust for fingerprints, the things that are unseen become seen, and then they're able to make an identity, and they're able to see things. And that's how we want to approach the Bible, is we want to, want to look a little bit deeper, shed a little bit of a powder on this so that we can dust for fingerprints and see, see God's hand and see what God's doing. Not just out of curiosity just to see it, but to understand how God is probably working in our lives as well. Because if he consistently does something all through the Bible then it's pretty safe to assume that he's going to continue to do that even with our lives specifically. All right? So let's start with Genesis. Start with Genesis, and that word means origin. It means starting point. And that's where we want to go. And I'm going to, we're going to look at a couple of, of verses here. And, just, and I know you know the story of, of creation and that start, but we want to go through and look at a few a few key facts, because what you see in Genesis, especially the first couple of chapters, is, is what I would say is the prototype of how things ought to be. What you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is what you see at the end of Revelation, because you have the prototype, the design that God had 
for interaction with his creation before it kind of was altered. So let's start. Chapter 1, verse 26, part you all know, God created Adam, he created man. That's what that means. That wasn't his, it wasn't, I know it becomes his name, but it wasn't necessarily his name. It just means God created man or mankind. Let us make Adam in the image and after our likeness. Now, image means to have the same parts. Well, likeness means to, to operate in the same way. So if, if we had up here, and this was a workshop, and we had on, on a stand an engine with a starter, and I turn that starter and that engine fires up and it runs. But then over here, we have the same engine but instead of being assembled, it's all in parts, all on the floor. Exactly the same parts as that, but if I turn the key, what's going to happen? Nothing. The two engines are in the same image. They have the same parts, but they don't have the same function. Now, if I take all of those parts and I assemble them, turn the key and it starts, then I would say this engine and that engine are in the same image, and they're also in the same likeness. Okay? So this is one of those jump off points, because we would say, what are the characteristics of God, and what are the char characteristics that we share with him, and how are they supposed to function, but we're going to keep moving on, because the next verse, verse 31, it says, and God saw this, and it was very good. So this was his design. This is the way he, he wanted it. Now, if you turn the page, and we go to chapter 2, it says there in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him or put, however you want to look, put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in those days that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this paradise, this Eden, it means to be a paradise. It's beautiful, it's plentiful, and it's peaceful. And God says, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the design. This is, if you want, this is heaven. And this is the way that God designed it to be for mankind to enjoy the blessing of God in its fullness, in its bountifulness, in its beautifulness, in its peacefulness. And he says, you can do absolutely anything you want other than one thing, which is to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you can do everything. You can enjoy everything. You can go everywhere just there's this one tree. Stay away from that one. Just don't eat that, because when you do, you surely die. It's kind of like what we have today as a believer today. You, you are free to do absolutely anything you want to do except sin. That's the only thing. And what do we gravitate towards? Sin. That's, that's part of the nature. It's part of the, the way we're, we are. So then we look further. Verse 18, Genesis 2.18. In the garden... We see that there's one human being at this time, an Adam. Or we assume there's only one. But there's many animals, and all the animals are male and female. And it says there that God looked and he goes, there wasn't a suitable or a right helper to come alongside Adam. So God says, here's what I'll do. I will, I will do something to fix this. So in verse 21, 
we see that God kind of does this surgery. And on this surgery of this, this human being, this Adam, he, he takes from his creation what we read as a rib, whatever that was. God takes from something and creates another being. We could say he does an upgrade to the Adam, and I would say that just because anything that God puts his hands on comes out better. So we look at that, and we say it's not that man was better or woman was better, but the design is now better than it was in the beginning. And he says there's, there's these two. So there's an Adam, and then there's what Adam calls a woo-man. Do you know why it's called that? Because that's what he said when he saw her. He went, ooh, man. And, but it's a, it's a word that is, the Hebrew word is isha. And isha means, and it's kind of a concept, is a man from a man that is not a man. All right? Some would speculate that the rib, and this is, this is one of your looking out points, some would speculate that the rib and, and the word curvature are, are, is what it comes from, is that it was referring to the curvature of the womb instead of the rib, which you go, hmm, biologically, that makes sense. And you can kind of play around with that. What, what we know is something changed, something dramatic, and then now the, the one is now two. What was the one in the beginning? Well, you can speculate there as well, but now they're, they're two. There's man and there's woman. Now, verse 23 uh, the man said, this is, is last, uh, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And they shall become again one flesh. So Adam makes a statement. And he makes a statement because he knows how significant this is. He knows that, that God has done something extraordinary for no other reason than to bless Adam that no suitable helper was found, and God didn't say, well, you have to just live with that. God said, I'm going to make it better for you. So he does this, and God and Adam recognizes this because he's looking in that and realizing that a part of himself is now apart from himself. There's, there's a part of him that's now in front of him. And, and that statement comes out that when they come back together, that partnership, that they're now one flesh again. Flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And God commanded that man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That, that hold fast means to hold on for dear life. To cherish it. To value it. And so this is the setup. God creates Adam looks and says, everything else is male and female. We're going to modify this, but we're going to modify it on purpose so that Adam sees this as a blessing. Brings it to Adam, woman, and then he says, you know, when you come back together, you're one flesh. And the commissioning for Adam that he understands just instinctively is this is to be valued and to be cherished and to be protected at all costs. Okay. In Genesis 2.25 is the verse where it says, and they were naked and they felt no shame and they were in the garden and everything is great. Naked means arom, arom, and it means naked or bare or not clothed in an ordinary way. 
is kind of the, the wording and what it means. So we got this story to this point. You've heard it a million times. You did it in Sunday school. You probably did it on flannel graph. And uh, so you got a man and you got a woman in paradise. Everything is perfect. Do whatever you want except eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then you turn your page to chapter 3, and chapter 3 starts with, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? Now, the serpent, I'm not saying not to think of it as a snake or as a serpent, but a serpent is a, is a symbol. You see it throughout the Bible. When it talks about the enemy, it, it will often use serpent or dragon. They're kind of interchangeable. You see that in ancient cultures, in, in the, the dragon, the serpent, one or the Leviathan, all of those things get mixed into all the ancient civilization, and it's always something working against God. And so you've got this being, whether it's a snake or not, but this being, the way it's written is, understand this being is working against God. Whatever the, however it presented itself, it's a serpent. It's working against the things of God. It's to be, it's to be recognized, but they're, they're brand new at this. And this being approaches the woman with a question. And it's a question intentionally asked to solicit a response, a very key response. It's a trap. This serpent is laying a trap. Now, here's one of the questions that we have. It says that this, was, this, this being was crafty, that it was, was sly and it was shrewd. The definition is clever in achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. So here's the question. This is one of those, why did God do this? Did God create this being crafty, or did God create this being and it became crafty? Then you would tie in, well, the fall of Satan, and you might look at that, and you might unpackage that a lot more, and that's one of those things you can dig into on your own, what, what came first, the serpent or the craftiness? We kind of look at that. So, we move on. Verse, chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw, or when she perceived or determined, when her, her eyes looked at it and, and something triggered inside of her thinking that this was good, she took and she ate. And the next part of that verse says, and you, you know it, that then she gave some to her husband, and he also ate, right? And there's an and there. And it's that and that we want to explore a little bit. Now, you remember how chapter 2 ended? Chapter 2 ended with this, that man and the woman were naked, and they were not ashamed. And we said that that word translated naked is arum, which means uh, to, to be either be without clothes or to be clothed in a different manner, in an unordinary manner. This is where it gets fun. Because we got to think, are they just running around naked or is there something else going on here that, that we can infer? And, and we don't want to just make stuff up, so we look elsewhere in the Scripture. So if you, if you have your Bible, you can look at, uh, at Psalms chapter... Uh, 104. And in Psalms chapter 104, 
Psalms 104 is kind of a, a kind of a poetic retelling of creation. And it gives you kind of this, so it, it, when it writes those things and it begins to allude to something, you, you have to go back and you have to think in the context of what it's referring to. And it's referring to creation, and it starts with this, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. Okay. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now, from that, we see that what, what he's describing is God being clothed with light, or what we sometimes say being clothed with the glory. And so what we speculate or theorize is that Adam and his, his bride created an image and likeness of God, were also clothed with the, with the light, all right? Now, you can take that or reject it, whatever you, you want to do, but it's, it's kind of an out there, it's kind of a, a standard acceptance that that's kind of the state that they were in. So, Adam and Eve, in the likeness of God, are clothed with the light. Remember Jesus when he went up to Mount Tra- Transfiguration, and he kind of, kind of let himself out, and it said his, his garments became as, what? Light. So it kind of, Jesus in that moment in transfiguration takes on that image again. And his garments become as light. Now sometimes we talk about the Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory is the, the presence of God. That's the light. So we talk about the Holy of Holies has this glory in it, the Shekinah glory. That's the presence. That's not what we're talking about here. Moses goes into the presence of God and comes out and it's like his face is glowing. But we see this other analogy where the glory is upon them, like clothing, like Jesus with these. So we look at this, and we say that they're clothed with the glory. Now let me ask you this question, if you're tracking with me so far. What would have happened to the glory when she ate the forbidden fruit, when she sinned? Would she keep the glory or lose the glory? Now, here we're going to go into the theorizing. How long do you think it takes for that sin to take effect in the natural? Is there a long lag time, or do you think that's probably pretty instantaneous? Never thought of that, did you? Where's Adam? We don't really know. He's nearby, at least. It doesn't say that Adam was part of the conversation. It doesn't say that he was engaged in this at the same time, but it says that he was there. He was at least nearby. And Eve, or the woman at this point, takes this fruit. She takes it, she sees that it's good, she takes it and she consumes it. And if the theory holds, then in that moment, there was an immediate physical change in her. The glory's gone. That sudden realization that she had betrayed the only command of God. Realized because she loses that glory, loses that covering. And Adam, though we don't know where he is, he's nearby. 
We don't know if he's privy to the conversation. We don't know if during the conversation he went, oh, I, I agree with that. Let me have some of that. It doesn't say any of that. All it says is Adam was nearby. And when she gave him some, he ate it. Let's look at that. Verse 6. Genesis 3, 6. She gave it to, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. The eyes of both of them were then open, and they knew that they were naked. So here's something to think about. I'm not saying I have all the answers here. This is one that you can kind of think about and process. Adam is present, or at least nearby. But he either looks or he steps up. And this woman, his bride, that he's only known to be clothed with the glory, is now without the glory. And in that moment, Adam has to make a choice of what he's going to do. And we expand the and. And we slow the thing down. And he steps in, in all of his glory, but he's looking at his woman, his flesh of his flesh, who's lost the glory. And he takes the fruit, and he consumes it as well. Why? So we can look at, I would say it's one of three things. Either one, Adam was deceived by this. He didn't understand what was going on, or he was part of it, and he kind of got caught up in the moment. But I'm thinking even if she took a bite a second before, you would have enough time to go, ooh, I don't want to do that. So either he was oblivious to it, and he got caught up in the moment, and he was doing this simultaneously in that he was, he was under deception, like, like she was, by the, by the serpent, or his love for woman proved to be greater than his love for God, which would be idolatry, and he took. Or does Adam knowingly take the fruit to walk alongside his bride so she does not face judgment alone? Now, I just gave that to you today. I've been thinking about this for months now, and I can't get my head wrapped around it. So I, I, I labor about this, to think about this. But then here's where I go. I think the reaction of God to the moment would probably give us the answer as to what just took place. What does God do? Does he look down with judgment? Does he look down with disappointment? Or does he look down with understanding? Verse 11. You know how it goes. He kind of questions the, the God as judge, questions the, the different parties involved, the serpent, uh, the, the woman, and Adam. And, and he gets to Adam and he goes, you know, dude, like, what, what happened here? 
And Adam's response is, the woman whom you gave me with, uh, or, or gave to be with me, she gave me fruit and of the tree and I ate it. Now, now, what we do is we tend to read this based on a preconceived idea of what we think just happened. So, and I preached this before, that we look and we say, well, Adam immediately, instinctively tries to blame other people, so he blames his wife, and then he blames God. After all, God, you... The, Kind of the one you gave me is the one that kind of caused all this. And we would look at that and we would say, say, well, what Adam is doing is he's trying to dish off responsibility on everybody else because that's kind of the way we've been kind of in taught to kind of look at this. But let's, let's, let's take a time out on that. Go with me a little bit. Let me, let me walk you through something and see what you think about this. God looks at Adam, the one created in his image and his likeness, who has willfully taken this fruit and eaten it and lost the glory. And God says, what, what have you done? And Adam says something like this, the woman, the flesh of my flesh, my help meet, whom you entrusted to me, whom you blessed me with, she ate of the fruit. And I saw the change that took place in her. I saw that she lost the glory, but my heart was so moved that she would be alone in that that I willfully gave up my glory to be with her to see if we could be redeemed together. And that's where you go. That sounds like heresy. That Adam would look to God and say, my duty was to love and honor that which came out of me. Even if it cost me everything. And you say, that's ridiculous. To which I respond is, would Jesus do the same? And all of a sudden you go, ooh, that the Savior would willingly surrender his glory to become one of us, to redeem us. And we go, well, that's, that might be pushing it. But let's think about this. Let's think about this in, in that spiritual realm. And, and knowing that the Bible often mixes that, that physical and the spiritual, and they, they kind of interchange with one another. And we go, well, is that a principle that we see throughout and that, that it would be right for Adam to, to, to come alongside his bride in such an extraordinary way? Because we've always been taught that, that it was Eve who sinned and then Adam sinned as well because she made it too easy for him to do it. And Adam's response was to blame everybody else. But then, then we begin to look and we go, but wait a minute. Is that the pattern that we see God doing? And we jump over to another familiar text in Ephesians. Now, men instinctively memorize Verse 22, women submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
But we want to look at verse 25. Now look closely at what it says. And one of the things you're going to notice right away is there's a, there's a casual interchanging between husbands and Jesus. Between the Adam and the Son of God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, who's, who's, who's he referring to there? Because you see how it keeps switching back and forth? So sometimes he's talking about Jesus, but you go, but was that Adam's role as well? Now, the thing was, Adam steps into that, but he can't redeem her. He doesn't have that ability, but Jesus does. Now, here's the question. Men, if you had everything, paradise, plentiful, beautiful, peaceful, and your wife blows it, how are you going to react? Would you be a little, a little bit miffed? Would you kind of throw a little bit of a pouting moment? You had everything. We just, why did you have to do that? And, and what we do is we, we take this idea that it was her fault, and then we create a whole system based on that. But we miss what is written throughout the scriptures. That there was an act there that was huge. So let's go back to this. Here's the big part. This is something I never saw this before. This is brand new to me. How Adam reacts should tell you his motivation in this. And verse 20 says this, the man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve. This is the first time her name is introduced. He chose to call her Eve. You go, it's no big deal. Until you look at what Eve means, the name literally means life or living and the better translation is a giver of life. Now, you ready for this? That was a prophetic statement. That was a faith statement of what she was in reality and not what she appeared to be in the moment. What was the consequence to eating of that fruit? You shall surely... So if she was the first to do it, then she is the bringer of death. But Adam never refers to her as that, and he immediately refers to her as the giver of life. And we go, well, that's because she can have babies. But she can't overcome death. But he speaks a prophetic word over her that he continuously refers to her as Life, not death. 
he always speaks to what she was designed to be and not what she was. He always speaks of her higher position than her low position. He speaks of her with the glory and not without it. They were words of restoration, words of redemption that would take thousands of years to come to be. And part of that is then the Lord made. That's a key line. The Lord didn't say, you're, you're done with me. I'm, I'm turning my back on you. It says, the Lord then made for them coverings. Just like he had given them the coverings in the beginning, he gives them substitute coverings, earthly coverings. And he tells them what the reality is going to be because there's consequences to what they were due. And you turn the page into chapter 4, and life begins. It says that Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel. And then it talks about another child, that she has Seth. And Seth, she named Seth because Seth means appointed, that you, this child was appointed to replace the one that I had lost. Cain's line goes on, and, and uh, down in, further down in chapter 4, you read about Tabul, Tabul Cain, who is the creator of weapons. That the, the first one to kill, his line are the first ones to forge weapons to kill on a larger scale. But that line goes one way, and then there's a Seth. There's an appointed one to assume the position. And Seth literally means appointed. He later has a son that he names Enoch, and Enoch means mortal or mortal man. And chapter 4 ends with this, and at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it doesn't say everybody began to call on the Lord, because then we could say, well, then everybody lived happily ever after, and that would kind of be the end of the story, but we know that's not the end of the story. It's only the beginning of the story. Because not everybody called on the name of the Lord. Some called on the name of the Lord. Other called on other gods. And some began to promote themselves as gods. That's the way the trend goes. You go from communion into chaos, into confusion. But some, some continued to call on the name of the Lord. Now you get to chapter 6. You skip chapter 5. We'll go to chapter 6. By the time we reach chapter 6, things have spiraled downward to the point where it says, and the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. But Noah. You look at this, this picture that we would say is, is the worst time in civilization. And God looks and it, his heart is broken at the condition that things are in. But Noah. Noah, which, which means rest or comfort. He finds favor with God. Not that he was perfect, not that he was sinless, but he finds favor with God. And God says in the midst of all of the chaos, there's a, there's a Noah, there's a rest. There's a comfort there. And God said, I, I, I can work with that. And if we went back to chapter 5, chapter 5 just has this part. You, you may have a heading that says something like uh, the genealogy of Noah or, or the descendants of, of Adam to Noah. Mine says Adam's descendants to Noah. And, and this is, you, you have this list of names. You have Adam, 
And some of these we already talked about, Adam and Seth and Enosh and Kenan and Mahalalel and Jared and Enoch. Remember Enoch? Enoch was taken up by God. And Methuselah, who was the oldest recorded living being, and Lemek, and then Noah. And you go, well, that's, that's why we skip chapter 5, because it's just this genealogy. But all of those names have a meaning. So if we go to the next slide, it says that, that Adam, and some of these we already looked at, means man, and Seth means appointed, and Enosh, his son, meant mortal. That was kind of the, now they're removed from this and they're, they're off to the races. Kenan means sorrow or despair. Mahalalel, El meaning God, is like El Shaddai. That's, that's the name for God. So Mahalalel means the blessed God. Jared is, is, is kind of a word that means descent. It's better to describe it as shall come down. And Enoch, which is teaching, they believe to be the first prophet. Methuselah, now his, his name is interesting. His name literally means his death shall bring. And you go, oh, that's a, you want to keep him safe. Like when, you, when he's playing with your kids, you want to go, just don't mess with Methuselah, all right? Don't, don't do anything that would put him in harm. Just keep him safe. He lives the longest, and guess what happens the year he dies? What happened? The flood. Big event. His death shall bring, and you go, what? Well, bring a, a famine? Bring, no, no, it brought the flood. It's pretty significant. But it's also significant that he's the one that lived the longest, that God held on as long as he could for the flood. Then there's Lamech, that means, and you know it's not a happy time, just before Noah's time, it means the despairing. And then there's Noah, which we said already means rest. And you look at that and you say, well, that's an interesting group. But if we go to that next slide and we put it all together, you read this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching, and his death shall bring the despairing rest. And you go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know how this story goes. The blessed God does come down teaching, and his death does bring the despairing rest. But this message comes over thousands of years, from the time of Adam to the time of Noah. At the time in history when things are the worst that they will ever be, God puts a promise embedded in the names of those who are the descendants to tell them, hold on. I'm making a promise to you that a day is coming when I will restore the hope and I will break the curse of death. Adam could not redeem Eve. He didn't have the ability to overcome death. But a second Adam, the unique Son of God, could descend, take on the sins of the world, and die as one bearing those sins, but then rise again, defeat death, something that no other created being was capable of doing. And you go, that's a different picture. 
Now you, 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 you either focus out or focus in whatever way you're going there to look and go, oh, that's an image within an image. This is utter chaos, but there's embedded in that a promise, a peace. So here's the, the pattern that we're going to see. A pattern that emerges in these first eight chapters. There's, there's communion. That's where it starts. And, and with the communion, there's a, a commissioning. And, and for Adam, there was a commissioning that said, subdue and take dominion and multiply. Govern, like manage, govern, and multiply. But out of that commissioning, then there's a choice. And we either make choices that align with the will of God, which, which enhances the communion and, and enhances the commissioning and enables us to do that to a greater and greater measure, or we make choices that are not in line with our commissioning, and those choices, whether made intentionally or unintentionally, but those choices have consequences. And if we continue on that path, those consequences lead to chaos, which is the state of being is, is, is chaotic, is, is, is out of control, or into a state of confusion, which is individual, where it doesn't matter what's happening around you, you don't understand what's going on. So you see this pattern that begins to emerge, and you're going to see it over and over and over again. Now, here's the nice thing. The good news is when this happens, we make choices. When we make choices that are out of line with the will of the Lord, and there's consequences to that, we can repent. We can just turn, change gears and go, I need to get back and be restored to the communion. Now, if we continue to press on and we get into that state of confusion or that state of chaos, then even there, what God does is in those moments, God sends a Noah. He sends a rest. He sends a, a, a path to get back to communion. And he's not worried about what you're doing. He's worried about the relationship. And then out of the relationship, he can give the commissioning and from the commissioning, we can choose to hear and obey. And as we hear and obey, that strengthens our communion. And as it strengthens our communion, it fortifies our commissioning, and we're able to subdue, take dominion, and multiply. Not in a, in a, in a controlling way, not in a tabulcane way where we do it by force, but we do it by the will of God. We can be revived, or we can be awakened. So when we look at our world and all the chaos it is right now, why would we give up hope for Noah today? In our church, in our community, in our province, in our nation, in our world. The God's promise is, there's a Noah. Look. So we come back to this promise, man is appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching, and his death shall bring the despairing rest at the worst point in history. And at the very worst time in history, God still embeds his promise of hope. Then why would you give up hope for revival today? Why would you give up hope that the person you've been praying for won't come to Christ why would we give up hope 
that the great outpouring of a Holy Spirit and a, and a refreshing of the Holy Spirit isn't just around the corner. And, and if that's the promise that we would give, why would we give up hope that where God has us, that he can't redeem us and restore us and use us? Why would we give up hope that you can experience in your life the closeness with God, the intimacy with God that empowers you in your gifting and in your creative purpose to be able to do His will? We have the same promise today. So if you think about it, from the great fall to the great flood, God worked... God worked with those who called on the name of the Lord. But in the midst of all of that, every time Adam called Eve's name, he was reminded that there's life. And every time Eve called Adam's name, she was reminded of the creator who created Adam and then, then made the woman. And each time they spoke each other's name, they were speaking words of faith and reminders of what life was meant to be. In the midst of all the chaos and the confusion, the way we get back to communion is we speak words of life and we speak the promises of God even when it doesn't look like they're being manifested. We speak the words of God by faith that the Lord has a plan for us, that the Lord has a will for us, that the Lord has redeemed us. We speak words of faith that says we can overcome this. We can overcome that sin that's, that's plaguing us. We can overcome the, the disability that we have right now, that we can overcome that. We speak words of life when we speak words of the Savior in the midst of all the chaos and the confusion. We have to hold out hope in the promise that there is a second Adam that broke the curse. And when we begin to unpackage this, next week we're going to go a step further and look at, 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 at being more than just a series of right and wrong. That's the, that's the shadow of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And sometimes we have to look at the bigger picture of what God is doing. But where you are right now, what do you need to reinforce your faith on? What do you need to change course and get back into the communion and speak words of life? Don't give up that prayer. Don't give up that desire. Come back to that relationship with the Lord. Focus on the intimacy with the Savior. Focus on that relationship with Jesus. Get there and begin to ask, Lord, what do I do from here? And watch how the Lord begins to show you and guide you the path that you take in the commissioning to see his glory. And don't give up hope. Next week, we'll see where it goes from Noah. And it's not always good, but we'll see where it goes. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word and your word. We pray for fresh revelation that we would see you to greater and greater measure. Not that we just want to be entertained with trivial matters, but Lord, we want to understand what your heart is 
so we understand of who we are in your eyes. So, Lord, I pray today that your spirit would just speak to our hearts. Show us in our, in our thoughts, in our dreams, in our visions that we would have who you see us as. Speak the things into our hearts that you want us to speak out by faith. Lord, lay people on our hearts for us to pray for that we can come alongside to seek to redeem and restore to you. And Lord, may we experience the fullness of what you have for us and be faithful to do what you call us to do and see your glory manifested in the lives of people in abundance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.